From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. I'm John Plotz, and my guest today is Alex Starr, brilliant editor of Ferrar, Strauss, and Giroux, former editor of Lingua Franca, founding editor of the Boston Globe Ideas section, and editor of many remarkable prize-winning books, including George Packer's The Great Unwinding and James Foreman's Locking Up Our Own. He's also a friend of mine of extremely long standing. Um, the name of this new series for Recall This Book is Books in Dark Times, and it explicitly takes its inspiration from Hannah Arendt's Men in Dark Times from 1968, which proposes, quote, that even in the darkest of times, we have the right to expect some illumination, and that such illumination may well come less from theories and concepts than from the uncertain, flickering, and often weak light that some men and women in their lives and their works will kindle under almost all circumstances and shed over the time span that was given them on Earth. So at this dark moment, we really want to know what brings people like Alex and like you, dear listener, comfort or joy. Basically, I want to talk about your comfort food of books in a time like this, because my idea is that a lot of people now are going to be finding themselves actually able to sit down and, you know, pull something off the shelf and more than that, like wanting to pull something off the shelf. So, right, um, right, right. No, good. Um, so I'm a little constrained by, by sort of external factors, one of which is, um, you know, we moved into this house and I'm just, we got our bookshelves built about a few days ago. They finally were yeah. built. So I have 80, 80 boxes of books in the basement, which I am only beginning to unpack. Oh my God. So you're, you basically have to do the uh, kind of like, uh, it's, it's like that fishing game you played as a kid where you just stick your hand in and you pull out a book. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So sometimes it's quite a, quite a treasure, you know, in, in, the, in the Jack in the Box or I don't know, what am I trying to say? But um, sometimes it's not. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little arbitrary what's come out so far. And I can't say I've deliberately selected something entirely new just because of my mood or circumstances or philosophical reflections on the present. So Alex, so in other words, you're dipping into books at random now, but is there a book that you are anchored in right now? That yeah, though no, I, I wanted to mention too. So one, I think I, I it's the Jill Lepore, the These Truths. That's just been a book oh, yeah. that's been sitting on my shelf for yeah. a long time. I would say just, you know, once I got into it, it took me a little while, but once I got into it, sort of the skill with which she fills in broad outlines, but, you know, does it with unexpected twists and terrific quotes and vignettes and you know, kind of strike certain balances in certain ways that, that I, I sort of find interesting. It's pretty, yeah. pretty absorbing. Yeah, I was going to quote one line, just to give an example of where she can just do something so much with so little, is when she's talking about the, uh, you know, the Second Great Awakening, 20s, and then the kind of Christianization of America. I mean, she'll have one great statistic that, you know, church attendance really seemed to grow from about 1 in 10 to 8 in 10 in about 15 years, which seems hard wow. to believe, but if true, yeah. like that, that dramatizes it pretty well. But this is Whitfield, he said this. He said, I would go to jail with you, but I would not go to heaven without you. I would go to jail with you, but I would not. But go I would heaven. not go to heaven without you. In Meaning. other words, he thinks he really genuinely believed that every single person he was speaking to at a camp meeting should go to heaven and would go to heaven with him. And he would stake his own life Right. And the possibility of his own redemption on uh-huh. bringing everyone with him, absolutely everyone who was there at the camp meeting. So when you just think of like the transition from this huh. sort of Calvinist idea of, you know, limited atonement and then, you know, only the, the, the saints go to heaven to right. a kind of more open minded, you know, you participate in your own salvation and you can make it happen through your own will. Instead of just making some abstract comment about Arminianism, that quote, you know, I would 
not go to heaven without you, which sounds like a huckstery ad man, you know, slipping one by us. It's nonetheless such incredibly brilliant rhetoric. And Wait, are you saying that it's that brilliant before. rhetoric or are you saying that it actually marks a kind of ethos, a development of ethos, like a different way of conceiving? Well, I, I think both. I think spirituality. it's pretty hard to separate what was innovation in theology from an innovation in, in salesmanship. And, you know, um, so it's actually funny that you would mention that that would be the point you would mention, because I was going to say the thing that's been that I've been really drawn into right, lately is Wolf Hall. And the reason oh, yeah. so I like, we're really we're really thinking about the Reformation here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like it because of its Protestant theology. But yeah, it is yeah. all about hucksterism and salesmanship too, because except right. the way that he the way that he, that is Thomas Cromwell, the central character in Wolf Hall, the way that he sort of saves souls isn't so much by preacherly manifestation of mm. deep healing, it's by kind of bureaucratic leisure demand and like manipulation and right. insiderism, right. but always in pursuit of this vision of, you know, bringing whatever, Wycliffeism or his vision of mm -hmm. God. Or, mm -hmm. So yeah, like I think the thing that feels both fascinating and comforting about that book right now is that it's a book that draws me into something where I can really feel how deep the stakes are for the person involved. Right. Know? Like it's right. important, like it's a book usually when I'm reading a novel on the side in my ordinary life, I'm looking for something that will allow me to come into it, not exactly speed through it, but just kind of mm -hmm. enter it mm -hmm. on my own terms and then leave again. But right now, what I really want is a different kind of book. I want a book oh, I see. that actually makes, that has tentacles that really kind of holds me in. Yeah, and what, what gives it tentacles? So for me, it's the way that on the one hand, Cromwell, we see Cromwell being an operator. And on the other hand, we see him, you know, he, he, it begins with his relationship to his beloved patron, Wolsey, who he eventually loses. Right. And then it is also about his passionate intensity about like revenging Wolsey. And mm -hmm. it's about his Protestantism, which can't really, or his, you know, non-conformist, non-Catholicism, which he can't really articulate openly, but it's like deeply there. And yeah. then he's also kind of just running a bunch of games all at once because he's like a master Machiavellian yeah. strategist. Yeah. But what I like about it is that there's a, there's a level of master Machiavellian-ness going on at the surface, but then mm -hmm. underneath you can feel the deep conviction and how it struggles. Right. So there's all these friends of his who we just hear that they're about to die or they're about yeah. to be burned or, you know. Well, remind me, I read it a long time ago, but there's also his family members who die in a they well, die his it, wife dies of the plague in one day yeah his, that's right daughter I, I thought the way, the way goes away and she comes home yeah I, I felt something that was just very powerful that kind oh, of it's incredible you know it, yeah. it's very poised and you sort of feel his indirect emotion there you know yeah. really yeah. it was extraordinary that, yeah. that, that's what stuck in my head from the book actually the most i think probably the wife dying okay well so alex on a more general level i do want to pursue this thought that you're actually able to take comfort because my basic question is like in this situation, what books give you comfort? What books you give you joy? And are those yeah. two the same thing? Because I think for mm -hmm. me, often I would say comfort and joy are the same. Like, you know, when I read Ursula Le Guin or something, like I find it deeply comforting yeah. and it gives me joy. But then other cases like Brothers Karamazov, it's not comforting at all. There's nothing comforting right. about it. But it gives me a great amount of joy because I feel mm -hmm. like it is thinking without banisters. Like it is just right. everywhere uh -huh. and, it's continually eroding. Like you think you understand how a character is grounded and then you realize, oh, but everything you think is just because 
that's what the character likes to think about himself, but he's not actually grounded on that. He's grounded on something else. So he gives me joy without giving me comfort. Right. So, so my insight is that you can take comfort and joy from practically anything, which is great. But here, I just want to take the term comfort a little bit because, you know, if, if we were not in the, in the plague time, would you be, you know, it would be very tempting to use the word comfort as a pejorative, you know? Totally. Whereas now it seems like something we uh, can appreciate, yeah. so. The, but the only thing I would say about that is that I, I think it is, I think my, the professional deformation of English professors is to take comfort as a pejorative, but as somebody who teaches like a science fiction class, yeah. a fantasy class, I'm less, I just, I, I don't, I've always been less inclined to take that as a pejorative, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And definitely less so at this time. But yeah, and I and I thought about that. Um, you know, why am I trying to write a book about Ursula Le Guin? And I think the answer is, you know, it's just, yeah. I mean, I, I guess comfort bothers me less than it bothers a lot of people in my profession. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I, I understand the aesthetic. I do not understand the aesthetic as necessarily proceeding from a sense of exposure to the abyssal the un yeah yeah the confrontation with danger like i get that aesthetic objects are remarkable sometimes in being able to do that i mean like there's like richard Serra sculptures that i approach and i'm right. thoroughly shocked and disoriented and that's right like that's what they should do but but i just don't think that's the only test for well no it can be pattern and harmony and um you know what, what's Bach or something is, is a different idea there yeah do you know this uh, yeah have you seen the yo-yo ma instagram he he re-recorded one of the dvorak cello pieces uh -huh. i'll send it to you it's like okay. um, coming home it's based on an american spiritual coming home or going home uh, yeah no no the, yeah and you know like i mean my you know willa cather who is you know she's my heart she writes about dvorak a lot and when she writes about mm -hmm. dvorak what she talks about is this way that you know, the, the effect of that music is to send you into some sort of reverie space that, yeah. you know, maybe you can't, it can't be very representationally grounded mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily um, conceptually right. revelatory. It's just like an emotional space, you know? Yeah. I don't yeah. think that's so yeah. bad. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Well, let me, um, let me think about comfort in somewhat different terms. Uh, because um, there's an yeah there's an element of comfort and discomfort in reading Lepore, which I think has to do with almost anyone now trying to just think you know how here's a book that's trying to tell the big story of American history and how do we orient ourselves toward that story right and so on one account you know there's American history is a kind of providential design you know working toward you know maximum liberty and uh, uh, erosion of deference between classes and um, you know we're all going to be free and show the world how to be free. That's one story, you know. There's another story that, you know, America sort of maximizes what it means to plunder and, and exploit and um, Yeah, that's the Howard's in people's history of the United States. Yeah, and Ta-Nehisi yeah. Coates being the more recent version of it with different different emphases. And, um, you know, those are just two kind of meta narratives, if you will, that are out there that, you know, end up organizing a lot of historical discussion. And, yeah. you know, here's someone, Lepore, who's, you know, not really a partisan of either of those approaches or yeah. trying to just fill them in, but really trying to kind of rebalance them in some ways using the most recent thinking in different fields. Yeah. And what, 
So, this is interesting. Uh, do, please share this memory with me that when we yeah. were at Record Hospital together, when we did the college radio show, that Arthur Paul wrote on a record that, you know, somebody basically the only thing people ever said about records was this record sucks or this record mm. rocks. And yeah. basically, there was a Jill Lepore character who wrote uh. a record. It was probably Barnaby. It was like, it's right. pretty good. The guitar is kind of interesting. It didn't really. And yeah. Arthur wrote underneath, I don't understand. You mean it sucks and it rocks? <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying Jill Lepore saying right. America sucks, sucks and, and rocks. rocks. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, that's exactly <laughs> That should what be on a bumper doing. sticker. America, we right. suck and we rock. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's it's that modulation for better or worse. I find comfort in that just because yeah. I'm trying to find my balance on those issues, and so yeah. I don't wouldn't necessarily do it exactly the way she does, but I think she is trying hard to to kind of get that right. And thinking about that as you read doesn't always give me comfort, but it does help me think about what would give me comfort. Or yeah. So wait, but so here's the interesting thing. So one thing a lot of people say about comfort, and it's definitely true for me, is that it's available in it's connected with escapism. Like it is connected with the capacity to take right. and have you go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Like Thomas Hardy has a whole sort of attack on fiction that doesn't, that's not this worldly. He says, mm -hmm. you know, the fiction mm -hmm. that rural people want to read about the city or city people want to read about the country. It's just like an invented other place. Uh -huh. so it seems right. like you're saying your, your conception of comfort is very this worldly, right? Because you, because you find Jill Laporte comforting because she helps you understand our real, actual world, right? Yeah, or yeah. orient myself in a way that, that neither seems to be too complacent yeah. nor too, you know, simplistically alienated, <laughs> to choose my words. Yeah, before. so that's really interesting because I, like when I think about somebody like Le Guin or maybe Samuel Delaney, but definitely Le Guin as an example, and even Willa Cather, what I like about them is that they bring me to a place where I just feel like I can get my bearings on my conception of the world generally, but by being away from this world. Like, in other words, you're mm -hmm. saying Jill Lepore is great because she helps you get your bearings on this world, this America that we actually share. And what I'm saying is what I like about Cather or Le Guin is that they give me a conception of of a world which I recognize as possible, as mm -hmm. conceivable, as livable in, but it doesn't feel like my world. It actually feels like some other right. world. And right. going there, kind of like listening to Dvorak, just kind mm -hmm. of lets me do something else. Like it lets yeah. me be semi-detached, I guess I would have to say. Like it right. gives me a different, I still feel like it's the world, but I'm aware yeah. of it being kind of away from my own world. Do you know what I mean? Whereas what yeah. you're talking about is more like attunement or engagement. Yeah, attunement, right. No, that, that that's a good word. Yeah, I mean, obviously reading fiction can in various ways do more what you're talking about, but I think I probably resist science fiction mostly, partly because I, I'm not quite looking for what you're describing sometimes. So wait, so that, I'm so glad that that lets me ask you about this book that, I mean, Alex, you're, you're a genius editor. Everybody should know how many great books you've edited. But as you know, the book of yours is that I'm obsessed with is the Peter Godfrey Smith book about uh -huh. octopuses. Yeah. Called Other Minds. It's called, yes, it's called Other Minds, right? It is. It is, yeah. So what do you, when you think about that book, do you think about that book as a book of engagement or attunement? Or do you think about it as a book of 
otherworldliness and escape? Ah, good question. It's definitely a book of exploration. So that somewhat splits the difference. It's attuned to something, but attuned to something you don't already know. It's, um, you know, diving deeper into the water, deep diving deeper into history, and, you know, trying to reframe just the sort of question of how, you know, three-dimensional matter, you know, kind of folds itself up into something that feels like consciousness. So it's doing all of those things at once, uh, which is one of the things I, I, I love about it. But I... Uh, would not say it is creating an entirely different world to live in. I think it is yeah. inviting us in a way that feels, you know, rigorous rather than, you know, just fanciful, to use a loaded word, you know, about what, what it might be to sort of have the perceptual equipment of primitive, well, you know, certain kinds of sea animals, have their perceptual equipment, have their tasks that they need to accomplish, have certain kind of bodies that allow you to move through the world a certain way and put all those things together. And what might right. that feel like? And, you know, the, the book's not directly trying to do that over and over or anything, but implicitly that that is sort of a right. pretty exciting experience right. that, no. that borders on something more literary or imaginative. Like yeah, you could paraphrase that. You could paraphrase the intent of the book as what is it like to be an octopus? Sure. Yeah. 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 But so, so, okay. I want to pick up the word fanciful, which you, you, you knew I would, balk at but so you're saying that it, it it's rigorousness makes it very this worldly because it's an experiment which is meant to be strictly rooted in the science it's about the fact that the neural structures and the neural pathways of octopuses and maybe squid and other cephalopods are so different from ours and yet they have a kind of consciousness which therefore is very different from ours but we can kind of get at a get at a sense of what that consciousness is. And so you're saying that's rigorous, which makes it like disworldly or something. And you're saying the opposite of that would be fanciful. But I guess what I'm saying, but to me, the rigor, it's, it's rigor, it's success, is that mm -hmm. it does kick you sideways into really being able to think about distributed cognition, like the fact right. that octopuses basically do in some sense think with their tentacles because they have mm -hmm. these nerve cells that are in their tentacles and are kind of wired together but not centralized like it actually allows me to you know think of an other mind right. that yeah. works in a different way so for me so the comfort of that book and i do find that an intensely comforting book is that there are there are beings i almost said people there are beings yeah. on our world who just perceive and make sense of our world in a really different way from what we do. And, you know, that's just, there's just something um, mentally emancipating for me. That's interesting, because some people would find it very discomforting, um, especially in an ethical sense, just because, you know, if animals have such rich uh, inner lives or how whatnot, um, you know, uh, clearly we're, we're killing them and, and the oceans are, are killing them and everything else and that, you know, no, yeah, no, that, on that level, I mean, on the political level, absolutely, in terms of what the consequences of our, you know, the consequences of our lively unintended consequences as a species, yeah. which have now become intended because we see the unintended consequences and then we just ignore them, which makes the right. consequences. But yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, I think my response is a little bit different, which is, it has to do with the sense that if we do successfully manage to kill ourselves off, which honestly we seem mm -hmm. to do a pretty good job of, that there'll yeah. be a successor species around that has a different, you know, 
could do something different with this world. Um, yeah. Okay. No, I like that. I like that. And I assume you're also hot. It sounds like, you know, the, the, the possibility of these other consciousness also becomes attractive insofar as one senses the limits and flaws of our own cognitive setup and so forth. Yeah, so. absolutely. It does. All right. So wait, Alex, I'm going to, I'm going to look at my bookshelf and yell some random names at you. Cause I like Conrad, what, what does any mm -hmm. Conrad give you great comfort or great joy? Uh, I'll tell you what gave me great discomfort, but um, in, a, in a very intense way was I read The uh, Secret Agent when my children were very, very small. And yeah, jeez, um, it's a very particular emotional memory uh, of the, uh, the, um, the part of the book where um, the uh, sort of mentally defective young yeah. man who ultimately is Even blown up. The brother, is that his name? Yeah. I can't remember his name, but yeah. he, his body is blown to smithereens and he's only yeah. identified by the, you know, the name of his where he lives and then his yeah. boat, right? Yep. Is that right? Yep. Uh, but there's something about this, this vulnerable uh, boy and the way yeah. he's sort of mercilessly exploited and the poignancy with which his sort of family and home, you know, become uh, identified that, that yeah. <laughs> just found completely devastating. Yeah. So, he's yeah. the one who, he sees the horse being beaten and he says he wants to take it to bed with him because that's yeah. his idea of comfort for anything yeah. in the world is to take it to bed. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There's something about that tenderness um, and, and what's obviously not a particularly tender novel uh, yeah. really, really had, had an impact on me, so. Well, Conrad is like that, I think. He's very, he's very, um, I mean, he's so difficult, but he's not difficult because he doesn't know what it would be like to be happy. I mean, he can yeah. see happiness very clearly it's just always through several panes of glass or something like yeah. there's always that possibility because if the, if if it weren't there it wouldn't be so painful when it was snatched away yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah i do find i mean i love reading him but i do find him quite difficult there's something about the just the thick ooziness of the prose that is mm. wonderful when you kind of just ease yourself into it but um it, it doesn't tend to um uh what moved me along the way other Victorian writers usually do. Yeah. Well, this, he's modern, right? I mean, he's, yeah. uh, he's right. Maybe there's all writer. the levels. I think that's yeah. why I like him. It's like, like, like Hardy, you know, he's kind of, mm -hmm. he's broken out of the old, but he hasn't quite figured out what the new is. Yeah. Yeah. I read a lot of Hardy that, like a year or so ago. I can't remember if we talked about that much. Oh, no. It was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, so I had this book group again, and then and I picked Return of the Natives, and I think that was the wrong book, and was about yeah. not the one I liked the most yeah. at all. It's actually so yeah. much weaker to me yeah. than the others I read. But I was really astounded by, um, first of all, how much fun Far From the Madding Crowd is. Far From the Madding Crowd's unbelievable. And the Julie uh, Christie movie I was not is unbelievable. That's yeah. so funny. I'm dying to see it. I was just hearing someone talk today, this morning, <laughs> uh, in, a, in a video conference about, um, so the movie was directed by, you know, John Schlesinger. John Schlesinger, Midnight Cowboy. In its time, yeah, well, it was the movie he made before Midnight Cowboy, yep. and he almost didn't get to make Midnight yeah. Cowboy because it was such a huge box. So yeah. That was pretty interesting. It's a stunning movie. It, it uh, really, okay. like the this, scene where she goes yeah, running after is, him uh, with the Valentine, oh my God, yeah. 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 Well, and I, yeah, the, the sword uh, display, you know, such yeah. and whatever scene must be, must be pretty, yeah. pretty great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then Sergeant I reread Mary Day, what is his name, Sergeant? Troy, Sergeant Troy. Yeah, Sergeant Troy. And yeah. All Saints and All Souls Church. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And then I reread Mary Casper, which I had read before and just found it extremely affecting and just yeah. the sort of 
sense of the place. And um, yeah, there's this incredible passage about sort of two different bridges and like one is where more affluent people go to commit yeah. suicide, one yeah. is where poor people yeah. do. And just like yeah. that kind of yeah. observation, um, yeah. which exactly as you were saying before is what my harder might, might have missed in certain kind of other kinds of fiction yeah. um, was, was, just, was just astounding, so. Yeah. You know, I mean, the plot always gets a little creaky and takes too many turns toward the end. But in that book, I found myself not minding it at all. I just found it yeah. really yeah. anchored in that character. And Yeah. yeah. Can and, I yeah. just have to defend Return of the Native? I know you're right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Clem Yobright is a painful character. But I do feel like it, it's building up towards Jude the Obscure, which is, you know, it's an almost unreadably great book. Like it's, So I've been saving that, so I'm glad to hear yeah. you say that, because that's my next one. It, I mean, it's, I think yeah. it's amazing, but it is very easy to throw the book across the room. Like, mm -hmm. and I do think that's what makes naturalist books great, is that they are so discomforting, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and, and Jude the Obscure is fantastic because it begins in a place of great natural joy and beauty. Like it begins in that old rural England, but by chapter three, I mean, spoiler alert, like you're already mm -hmm. done with that. Like you can't return to that space. And that's the space that his other novels had sort of created. And mm -hmm. then in Jude, you know, it's just, it's not available anymore. Hey, have you uh, read The Sellout? Yes, yes, that was hilarious. that was great. I loved it's it. hilarious. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah. kind of brilliant too, right? I yeah. mean, it isn't just funny. It's actually, I no, it it it. I think it has a well. I think it has a this driving anger to it that makes the humor mm -hmm. amazing. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. No, I can't quite figure out how he pulled that off, but um, I can't either. It was, it was, it was and great. he's so mild mannered in person. Have you seen him speak? Like I, I pulled up no. a YouTube video. Uh, he's just like incredibly self-effacing. I mean, he's one of these people who like clearly saves all his energy for his work. And then the mm -hmm. work, I just feel like it just leaps off the page. But yeah. 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 Know. No, to sustain that kind of, you know, almost stand-up voice for that long yeah. is just sort of spectacular. I can't think of another book quite yeah. like that. Oh my god, Alex, thank you so much. This was great. Yeah. Recall this book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry, and the music comes from Barbara Cassidy and Eric Chaslow. It is edited by Claire Ogden, and production and publicity and website design is by Kaliska Ross. And if you enjoyed this or any of our other episodes, please do rate us or review us on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this, there's a lot more conversations about books where this came from. So please give us a visit at recallthisbook.org. So Alex, Thank you very, very much, and thanks, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.